and welcome back to the Francis Farmer Show. It has been almost a year since we have recorded one of these things, and we will be back uh, sporadically or so for the next couple of months at least. Uh, probably not much longer than that, but you know, we got the Seattle Film Festival coming up here, so we're going to be covering that, and then we're going to maybe do some stuff over the summer. But uh, I'm here. My name is Sean Gilman, and I'm joined by Melissa Taminga. Uh, Mike is uh, missing in action, still nowhere to be found, but uh, that's okay. We don't need him. <laughs> that's what we tell ourselves, anyway. Sure. Well, we need him to do the introductions to the shows. Right. Yes. We should just like call him and have him like record like a little introduction for every show. That's right. We can have a generic, you know, mic introduction. Yeah. That we could just play. That would be nice. Yeah. It would be. Anyway, so uh like I said, we are we're going to be uh covering the Seattle Film Festival. It starts in a couple of weeks and uh as of today we are actually officially accredited for the festival. So Oh right. Yay. Uh, me and, uh, and Evan Morgan and Ryan Swen will be, uh, watching a bunch of movies at the festival and writing about them on the site. And then hopefully, uh, you, Melissa will be able to watch some screeners and review them. And, uh, maybe Mike too. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, we'll try to force one on him. And maybe John, John, John seems willing to review some stuff. He, he reviewed something this week for us. It was, it was great. His first review in quite a while. It was good. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's our coverage. That's that'll be kicking off in uh, the middle of May when the festival starts, and then it runs uh, for I believe like thirty thirty three weeks, thirty four weeks. I'm not exactly sure how long. <laughs> Most of the rest of the year, is. basically. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and then over the over the summer, we're we're hoping to do some shows. We have uh, some ideas that we're kicking around, but we're not going to commit to anything. No. Yeah, we we will just wait for inspiration to descend. Sure. Uh, so what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk for some reason that we aren't exactly sure why we're going to talk about uh, Wong Kar Wai's Chunking Express and Fallen Angels. Yes. And uh, we're actually going to talk about them again because this is the second night in a row we've recorded this podcast because... Uh, <laughs> Somehow, after a hundred episodes of various podcasts, I have uh, like forgotten completely how to do this after a year off and failed to record my own audio last night. So, <laughs> so it was just me speaking into the void. Yeah, it's, basically, it's, mm-hmm. this is like a, a very kind of Wongian repetition we have going on. Exactly, here. like the yes. the two podcasts will be like mirror images of each other. It's like right. a, yes. Not every day and, is going to be the same know. way. That's right. That's right. And I mean, everyone should know that what we talked about last night was, it was amazing. It was. So. It, was it was, it would have, uh, like everyone who voted in that IndieWire, what's your favorite movie podcast oh, poll yes. would have like immediately written in to the uh, powers that be at Indie, IndieWire to change their votes. That's right. It's like, Francis Farmer show. Yeah. You must remember this is oh. now crap. It's only the Wong Kar Wai episode of the Francis Farmer show. <laughs> That's it's right. the only podcast worth listening yeah. to. Yeah. And we really gave it our all there. So, mm-hmm. you know, this recording is not going to be quite up to that level. So everyone can just imagine yeah. 
what that might have been like to hear that. Yeah, the, you know, the, uh, let the, uh, uh, as you're listening to this podcast, let the, uh, the idea of another podcast like float around in your head like a like a voiceover like like Faye Wong is is telling you what is really going on exactly what a real Mm -hmm. podcast would be like yeah just and you know just imagine Tony Long speaking with my voice exactly (laughs) I mean even just pull up a picture of Tony Long and then you will kind of have sort of the reality of what is yeah actually the just podcast. don't even just don't even listen to this podcast just go look at pictures of tony long <laughs> that's right so turn it off now go look at pictures of tony long <laughs> yeah I, I had a friend at the at the video store who, who saw when she saw chungking express she became obsessed uh not with tony long but takashi kanashiro so yeah. she, would, she would go to Scarecrow mm-hmm. and and she rented like every Takashi Kanishiro movie she could find and she just watched them all. Oh, that's the time. interesting. Yeah. yeah, no, I could I could see that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk about those movies and uh, we're also gonna talk about some stuff that's going on in Seattle because this is the Francis Farmer Show, of course, is the official podcast of the Seattle screen scene which is a website that we write for. That's right. Occasionally. Mostly Ryan writes for it, but occasionally we also write. <laughs> Ryan is our main writer, yes. Uh, so yeah, uh, what is, uh, what's going on in Seattle right now is uh, a big anime series started at the Cinerama. And uh, that's, uh, there's no film. The Cinerama doesn't project things on film. They're very proud of uh, their lasers. They have laser projection, which is mm-hmm. apparently a thing. Uh, but they are laser projecting uh, a whole bunch of anime movies in Japanese, which is a, a, a very unusual thing for the Seattle area. Normally our anime movies are, are dubbed in English, except for like select showtimes, like at 10 o'clock at mm-hmm. night on a Tuesday, you get like mm-hmm. the, the real version. But Cinerama, yeah. almost everything is in Japanese, and they've got... Uh, like most of the the Ghibli classics that everyone has seen, they've also got like your Akira and uh, Ghost in the Shell. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have uh, a couple more obscure things like like Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind, and, and Castle in the Sky, uh, kind of less well known uh, Ghibli's uh, Satoshi Kon's Paprika, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They did uh, Wolf Children. That was last night, I believe. Uh, okay. Oh, and that was actually tonight. As I, I think it's actually playing right now. Uh, Wolf Children and Summer Wars is the Memora Hasada uh, pair, and but they've got uh, an Evangelion movie on Friday, so oh, not nice. yeah. not the good one as far as I can tell. There's a lot of Evangelion movies, but this is you are parentheses not in parentheses alone. Hmm. I don't know. You've, have you ever dived into the I, Evangelion no. series? Yeah, it's no, uh, I haven't seen any of them. Mm. It's a, it's a trip. I watched those a long time ago. <laughs> I did not understand it, but they're very beautiful. But I did not understand them. So, hmm. uh, and, they're, and then they're playing the Cowboy Bebop movie, which is cool. That is a great series. One that also yes. makes sense. Have you seen that? Have you seen those series? I haven't seen that one either, but I read a couple of re- reviews recently, so I would really like to check. Yeah, I um, think I think uh, I think you might might dig that series. Hmm. 
And it also sure. looks like they're playing the Red Turtle. Did you get it? I, th- I think that was uh, at the Vancouver Film Festival it too. Was, Did it you was. Get a it, it is see played, it there? Yeah. It's played like everywhere in Seattle over the last six months, and I still haven't mm. seen it. I've had. Mm. I had. A, I, I think I have a screener for it, but I never watched it. Uh, I guess it's got no dialogue. Oh really? Yeah. Huh. So it's like uh, it's not it's not subtitled, but there's no there's no dialogue anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Anyway, if if I mean if you've never seen Totoro or never taken your kids to see Totoro, yeah. uh, I can't imagine a better way to do it than laser projected at the Cinerama on a Monday night. But uh, that show's sold out. So anyway. yeah, it looks like a lot of them actually are. Well, a good number of them are sold out. Yeah, um, I mean the the Cinerama is a really cool theater that is normally programmed really really poorly. So whenever they play something. Mm-hmm. That is interesting. Uh, I think they sell out pretty quickly, which you would think they would learn from that, but right, program good stuff. <laughs> yeah, but but no. Anyway, the the anime series is running through May third, which is I think a week from today. So mm-hmm. if you're in the Seattle area, definitely go see those. And also ongoing up until uh, up until Sith starts really is at the Seattle Art Museum is a series of uh, Yesajira Ozu movies all playing on 35 millimeter which are that which are cool. fabulous yeah. they have uh, they already they already played like the the Noriko trilogy late spring early summer and Tokyo story uh, mm-hmm. and now they're doing a bunch of his late films uh, the early spring uh, equinox flower plays tomorrow night and then uh, Ohio uh, plays uh, the following Thursday and then late autumn and then the last one on May 18th is my favorite Ozu film and it's also his last movie um, An Autumn Afternoon and mm-hmm. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to try and go see that one because uh, I've never seen it in a theater and to see it on 35mm would be really awesome yeah is it I mean is it it's pretty unusual that they have many o- Ozu's playing on the big screen um, I mean outside of you know, some festival like New York or LA or something like that. Yeah, no? there's there was a there was an Ozu retrospective here. I want to say maybe ten years ago that came through mm-hmm. and played at the Northwest Film Forum, and that would have been 35 millimeter then. But I don't know that anything anything this big has really come around since then. Um, yeah, certainly not. Uh, you know, playing some of these uh, some of these later films that don't get mm-hmm. uh, don't get played as much, like yeah, uh, but are still definitely worth seeing. Like the the best uh, one of my favorite DVD sets that I bought when I was buying DVDs, which I don't really do anymore, but uh, is the uh, the Criterion Eclipse series of late Ozu films. Mm. It just got like yeah. five films. They're all fairly low profile. Uh, yeah. coming later in his career, but they're just so. Uh, good. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, there's there's kind of a sameness to them. Like they all they all kind of run together, and you know they have, you know, similar titles, and and the mm. the scenarios are often very similar about like families and kids wanting to get married or not wanting to get married, and mm-hmm. relations between generations. But uh, the uh, the experience of watching them is all the same as yeah. well in that they're all like amazing <laughs> it's like just great movies yeah yeah there there's like there are like a few filmmakers where you just kind of like climb into their movies and just want to mm. to live in them yeah uh, yeah 
Ozu, Ozu is definitely one of those for me, and, and like Eric Romer is just, I can just watch them all endlessly. Right, for sure. Yeah. Did they play uh, many of his earlier films? No, I mean, the series, uh, the earliest film is, is Late Spring. Oh, okay. I mm -hmm. think. Uh, yeah. So, which is, which is 1949. Yeah. So 1949. It's, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's all, it's all his post-war stuff. Um, uh, I want to say uh, some earlier Ozu films have played here recently, but I don't know if that's true, but, uh, okay. mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, he's the best. Yeah. He had such a, an amazing span of a, a career. Um, mm -hmm. I just, as you know, taught a Alfred Hitchcock class, which he also had the span from silent all the way into the the 70s and um <laughs> if i could get away with it i would love to do an, an intro to a zoo class and, um because of you know the span and also just the genius of his his films i i don't know if any students would come to the class but yeah i'd love be, to be able to do something like that that might be tough but, yeah. yeah i mean it's easier to put up the psycho poster and have students like oh hey that looks like a fun class to take but uh, Ozu might be a bit harder of a sell for uh, first and second year college students. Yeah, yeah, for like for like intro students, it's not that not that his films are difficult so much as they're no, exactly. Mm -hmm. They're they're a little intimidating in that uh, they're Japanese and they have this reputation for being like super serious. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Although you know, I, I like did have you, some students you start with like Ohio or something, and it's all about fart jokes. So. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can bring them in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did have a couple students ask if you know if I if I could do like a Kurosawa class or something like that. That might be. Um, yeah, Kur Kurosawa, Kurosawa, Hitchcock, uh, Kubrick, and Orson Welles. I think are right. And Scorsese. Those are like the five directors I yeah. started with when I was mm -hmm. learning. Yeah. When I was like first learning or teaching myself about film, actually. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, those are the directors that, that students, when they take an intro to film class, those are, they'll hear at least of those five. So yeah, anyway, yeah. yeah. My, my film 101 class on the, the very first day of class, uh, we watched the, we watched Seven Samurai and mm. the, the professor mm -hmm. stood up and it's like an intro to film class. So it was like a hundred, hundred kids there. And he's like, yeah. uh, we're going to watch this movie. It's, uh, three and a half hours long, it's Japanese, it's black and white, there's no intermission, uh, <laughs> you you have to sit here and watch the movie. Uh, if uh -huh. you can't do that, then you should not be in this class. That's awesome way yeah. <laughs> to weed out students. Yep. He, he clearly wasn't feeling any pressure from the administration to pull students into Oh no, class. He, he had tenure. Okay. He could do whatever he wanted. <laughs> He was the head of the department. Yeah. He was the head of like two departments. He was he could do whatever he wanted. Uh, yeah, that but I mean, nice. and then later in the class we watched we watched Boogie Nights. So it's like right. later in the semester. So if we'd, you if you wanted to bring the students in, you start with the the porn movie, and then you go <laughs> to the Japanese right. movie. But he didn't. He wasn't like that. No. <laughs> well, I do. I do show my students. Um, Rashomon in my just English 101, you know, basic like introduction to college writing and sure. they love it. I mean, they don't think they're going to love it, 
when I mm -hmm. tell them it's a 1950 Japanese black and white movie, but they, they, they love it. I mean, they have so much fun talking about it. So partly I think it's just, just put it in front of their faces mm -hmm. and they will, they will like it, but you have to get them in the class first, trick them to get into the class. Exactly. It's, <laughs> it's just like a cultural thing that tells you that like black and white movies or foreign movies are, are difficult or hard to watch. Right? Exactly. I mean, exactly. Foreign movies are hard for my kids to watch, but that's because yeah. they can't read. <laughs> they have a good excuse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My students do complain about the subtitles a little bit, but it doesn't last long, you know, when they start talking about the ideas and yeah. of what they've seen. So, yeah. Uh, so the other, the other local <laughs> film we want to talk about is uh, opens on May 5th here in Seattle, and that is uh, a movie that you have been anticipating for over a year now, I think. That's Almost right. a year now, because yeah. we saw yes. we saw Sunset Song at SIF, and mm -hmm. uh, by that time, I think A Quiet Passion had already premiered at like Berlin or something. Yeah, we were or wondering. we heard about it like shortly after it, or right around the same time, yeah. yeah. And so this is... This is Terrence Davies' film about Emily Dickinson, uh, which, which for you is basically what The Assassin was for me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I teach American literature, and of course, Emily Dickinson is always one of my favorite poets and writers uh, to get to. And that paired with Terrence Davies, who I've, I've, I've loved everything that I've seen from him and I and I he's he does really amazing kind of uh adaptations and he's always going to do I think something unexpected and and I really wasn't disappointed with this film uh at all it's I mean doing a film about a poet and in some sense about poetry is is something that seems self defeating to even begin to do simply because poetry obviously is words and often words on a page, even though I always tell my students, you, sh you need to read the poetry out loud. Um, but it does seem like a self de defeating sort of, sort of thing to do. But I, I do think that Terrence Davies really does pull off both kind of capturing uh, something about Emily Dickinson's poetry, but then also trying to get a little, get a little bit at her, her person, both, I think, querying some of the the myths that have surrounded her, and uh, also mm, reinforcing them in some ways. But then I think also um, presenting her to us as in some someone who is going to be all, always at some level a mysterious person, but who, who has lived in this world of of words um, and and lived passionately on some some level she she's called a, a poet of, of passion and um, just a poet of, of mood and in in, uh, uh, in in some ways you read her poetry and you feel lots of things um, even though also at the the technical level I mean she's a very structured poet her her rhythm is often <clears throat> just this three four rhythm that that mimics the the hymn tunes of the time but she's also playing with the form uh, in in so many ways, and and I think he really captures that that tension between both the strict form um, of her poetry, but then also the deeply felt kind of passion and emotion that is at the center of her 
poetry and that you kind of assume must have been at the center of her her being and her and her living as as well um and you really you also like this movie a lot yeah i saw it uh i saw it in in vancouver at the film festival and and i haven't uh had a chance to watch it again and i didn't write about it back when it came out but i i really i liked it a lot Mm -hmm. uh I was I was really struck by how it it managed to like to basically be a conventional biopic about an artist right. like we we see her her entire adult life basically uh her relations with her family and her friends and kind of love life that doesn't really go anywhere and her illness and and her her work so it hits all of these beats that you expect to see in a biopic but it's also mm-hmm. still uh very specifically a Terrence Davies film. So he's yeah. he's not just yeah. he's not diluting his style in order to tell, you know, this this generic story. Like there's mm-hmm. uh these kind of amazing like Terrence Davies as camera movements and uh yeah. is are there are there songs in it? Are there like sing alongs? I can't remember. Um I think there's I don't think so. I mean there's there, I remember this one moment this, where like, she plays the piano. Right. There's like a, a circular tracking shot through through this family, yeah. like sitting mm-hmm. sitting around the house in in, uh, in like candlelit. Are they like having a conversation then? Are they listening to something? I can't remember. But, I, uh, I I just saw it, but I can't remember exactly yeah. what. It's a, it's a very kind of Terrence Davies <laughs> type type moment, and mm-hmm. yeah, uh, and it goes this full circle around. Yeah, the, the the family as they're sitting there. It start, begins, I think, on Emily Dickinson's right. character, and then uh, goes back to her again. Uh, right, and rests and, on her, her and, face. And and the poems kind of play the same the same role in the soundtrack that the music does in in other Davies films because because all mm-hmm. of her poems we hear recited in in voiceover in the way that right. you'll hear um, like the. Uh, the Hillary Hahn violin playing in, in Deep Blue Sea or, you know, various mm-hmm. other songs in like Distant Voices or, or Long Day Closes. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's uh, kind of similar to, to Wong Kar Wai, I think. He, he's very attuned to the use of, of sound and music and its relation to, to the image and camera movement and how that all mm-hmm. goes together in cinema, how they're not really like two separate aspects of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yet, yeah. yet it is like I mean, you just write down what happens in the film. It's it's a very conventional narrative, but it doesn't. Yeah. It never feels like it. It always feels like something yeah. like new and unique. Yeah, yeah, and I I, I like the way that he um, tackles the the. Um, there's always in a biopic. There's off biopic. There's often a jump to. Here you have the younger actor playing um, the role, and then there's some kind of a cut, and then oh, you realize time has passed, and then here's another actor playing um, the same character. But he chooses to have the younger actors sit as a, as it were, for a kind of portrait or a uh, photo, and then the their faces begin to kind of shift and change very subtly, and then suddenly you're looking at the the older version um, of that character, and they're still sitting in this kind of portrait form. So, I think he it's it's a it's an elegant way of showing the shift of time, acknowledging this is something we have to 
do in a biopic. And but then um, also, I think acknowledging our sense of uh, history or even our sense of all of us have seen, you, you know, if you know anything about if you've studied Emily Dickinson, you there's this portrait of her that I think is extremely recognizable. And so he's almost like playing with that sense of portraiture and our, our sense of who we what our idea of this person is. So it's just a really beautiful visual way to show time passing, but also acknowledging the idea of what's in people's minds, I think, when they think of Emily Dickinson. Right. It's like, it's like the one picture of her, right? Yes, exactly. Or is it, or is it mm-hmm. just the one that, that gets used all the time? It's, it is the one that's used. I think there are a couple other ones. I actually just recently saw um, one of, of her that was quite younger that I think was maybe recently discovered, but there are very few um, at, at the very least. Um, but pretty much if you, you will just know that one, <laughs> that one particular image of her. So, yeah. So uh, do you think it, it uh, do you think it really kind of captures the, the spirit of, of her poetry of what made, what makes her, such a unique and interesting poet because she's someone that I, you know, my familiarity is just like mm-hmm. uh, a couple weeks in high school English class. Like yeah. I've, I've never studied her in depth. <laughs> I haven't read on my own mm-hmm. uh, more than mm-hmm. a few poems here or there. Uh, yep. So, I mean, I, I like know like the very basics. Of yeah. The I mean, I, I think it, at the very least it gives a, a really beautiful introduction to the the idea of her poetry. And I do really love that he has so much of her poetry in, he, that he chooses to use it in, in voiceover um, rather than even having her speak it or watch her in the process of writing it. There is just one moment when she is speaking one of her poems, but the, but the rest of it is in this voiceover. And I, I think that plays into um, the sense of poetry as this very formal kind of structured thing that is presented as this, um, in a way, this kind of uh, polished object. Um, and so you are experiencing it in that form, but you are, it, it the counterpoint of is it is you are watching kind of these lives play out before you and the kind of messiness and the, and the, the passions and the fights that these characters get into while you're seeing this this polished finished form of these of these poems or you're hearing hearing these this form and I think that that element is in her poetry there is this very deep passion in her poetry but also I mean they're just beautiful objects that you can just sit with and they and and most of her poetry you is most of it just fits on one page I mean they're these very most of them are very brief um, kind of things that you have just this brief impression with, but then they they also linger, of course, in your in your mind, and they do create this this mood um, that you'll be mulling over for a long time. And I think also, I mean, the other thing that she is known for is just the fact that there were a few of her poems that were published, but for the most part. Um, when she would send poems away, they were basically rejected as being filled with mistakes. Um, they, they thought that the, the innovation she was doing with punctuation and, um, and rhyme 
was it was just because she wasn't very good. Um, and it wasn't really recognized until some years later that this is actually obviously very intentional and she was well ahead of her time, um, kind of answering the call of, of Walt Whitman to sort of create this brand new kind of way of expressing poetry. And I think that there is certainly when you see uh, her life uh, as Davies portrays it in the film, that she is an eccentric kind of person that is always pushing against the kind of structures uh, and the, the expectations that are um, set for her, whether it's in her family or social expectations. And I think her poetry mirrors that um, as well, that it's in some sense, it's conforming and accepting, but it's also constantly trying ways to kind of break free of the, the expected structures um, and sometimes wholly does and will be misunderstood, <laughs> um, ex except by, you know, someone much later will understand kind of what she's doing. So I think he really does capture the kind of spirit of her poetry and then uh, in some sense her, her life as well. Yeah. So, I yeah. Think, I think uh, I think it's a really interesting film to to kind of pair with uh, with Patterson, which you haven't mm -hmm. seen yet and you really should no i know i i really it's my it's my one major regret <laughs> so yeah. far but it was that i missed it yeah it was it was my favorite movie of last year and and mm -hmm. it, it's also about a poet albeit a, a it's a it's a fictional poet but his poetry is by a real poet and it's it's very much mm -hmm. in like the the new york school 20th century poets which is not as it's not it, as experimental as Emily Dickinson. Uh, it's very different mm -hmm. in, in like in style and tone, but uh, it in in the same way that that Davies kind of puts you in the the mindset of, of a poet and what it means to to like live your life as a poet and to mm -hmm. to because you're a poet what when you're writing and you're also a poet when you're not. Uh, yeah, Jarmusch yeah. does the same thing and he captures it, uh, I think like amazingly well, just the way to look at, look at the world through a poet's eyes. And in, in Patterson, it's, it's really warm and inviting and happy and in a quiet passion. It is, mm -hmm. uh, it's initially really funny when Emily Dickinson is yeah. like, uh, just like being mean and hilarious, like she's in a Whit Stillman movie or something. Uh, <laughs> right, exactly. But it, it becomes like increasingly tragic as she becomes like yeah. her. She becomes more and more alienated from like everyone around her, and that, mm -hmm. uh, and then becomes you know uh, physically ill on top of that. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think it's really beautifully portrayed the way that her she she feels physically so physically trapped. I mm. think by the space that she's in um her, her physical body is yeah become this in a, a prison a kind of prison um in a way and then her poetry serves as a uh, um both an escape of that as, as well as a reflection uh of that i think there's a lot of times in in her poetry there is she takes on many many different personas in her poetry um oftentimes it's the persona of a um some kind of animal. Um, she takes on the persona of a 
a dead person or a dying person. There's one poem that begins, um, I heard a fly buzz when I died. So there's this sense of, uh, in her poetry, of looking back at herself in a way and, and observing herself as a kind of almost out-of-body experience. And I think that the film captures that sense of disconnection in a way between spirit and body and the kind of frustration of that or the sense of alienation in a way that that happens with that yeah so yeah <laughs> it's a, it's a great movie <laughs> it's really good yeah and it uh yeah. uh i don't think i ever actually said the title it's <laughs> a quiet passion oh <laughs> right. uh, and it uh it opens here in Seattle on May 5th. It is already playing in other places around the country, but, you know, we are where we are. So and I'm not yeah. sure when it opens in Bellingham, but probably a week or two. Uh, it's, no, I mean, it's not even listed on the schedule yet. So really? it might, I wouldn't be surprised if it was in like fall. Hmm. So, which is sad, but I'm definitely planning on seeing it again on the, on the big screen when I, when it comes here. So, yeah. And you should you should watch Patterson too. That's, that's good. Yes. I'm not going to say know. that it's better. I mean, I I liked it better, but I mean, they're both great. So. Yeah. 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 I mean, and they're and I think they go really well right? together. Like I think I think maybe I liked Patterson more for seeing it in conjunction with A Quiet Passion because. Uh, sure. Like some of the the criticism of of Patterson, the way it uh, is more uh, male centered. Mm, mm hmm. Uh, is kind of leavened by pairing it with uh, a movie about a female poet. Yeah, yeah. Although the fact that the female poet is like all tortured and alienated and the male poet is all happy and content. <laughs> happy and free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. Gender dynamics in a, in a, in a pairing of movies. <laughs> all right. So, uh, speaking of pairing of movies, we are uh, going to pair Chunking Express and Fallen Angels, and we're going to start talking about them after we listen to uh, some music here from A Wonka Wife. All 
right. So, so traditionally on on the Francis Farmer show and before that the George Sanders show, Mike and I would would come up with some uh, often torturous reason to justify why we were talking about the movies and the pair of movies that we were talking about on that episode. And I do not know if we have one for these two films. Uh, as I recall, we were just kind of brainstorming movies to talk about, and somehow yeah. we landed on Chunking Express and Fallen Angels. Uh, mm-hmm. Were we talking about 1995 movies or 94 movies or something? I can't, I don't I can't know. imagine why we would have been. No. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's not <laughs> like an anniversary of anything. I don't know. No. I, we we were talking about in the mood for love because I had just watched that, and we were talking about how uh, how difficult a movie that was to write about, uh, how right, exactly. and how some movies are easier to talk about on a podcast than they are to write about in uh, in like a review. Uh, yeah. But I and don't so we'll know see that there's like any other these. connection. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. I mean the the exactly. discussion the discussion we had yesterday was was fantastic, of course. Well, but, it was yes. Yes. So maybe it's you know maybe it's it's easy to talk about them once. <laughs> but the second time. Yeah, then you're screwed. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So. So uh, again, everyone, just keep in mind the ideal yeah. conversation that we had right. yesterday. So so Chunking Express. Uh, I am on the record as uh, stating as the second best movie of all time. That's right. After Seven Samurai. After Seven Samurai. Uh, yes. And it is uh, it is firmly in that spot. And uh, I saw I saw your uh, little written comment uh, about the film on Letterboxd when you watched it, and you you rated it uh, four and a half stars. Uh, and yes. So to to start this discussion, I I, I have to say. Melissa, why do you hate Chunking Express? <laughs> why do I hate Chunking Express? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just an irrational kind of hatred that wells up in me, and I just had to give it only four and a half stars. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, Sean. We're just going to have to split wildly on this film. I'm, I'm very disappointed. Uh, so you, you 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 clearly do not think this is the second greatest movie of all time because uh, while most people on the planet are more stingy with their star ratings than me, I don't think you're that stingy. So no, uh, I'm I'm pretty generous actually. Yeah, yeah. you you I you've think... also probably not watched it like a hundred times in the last seventeen years, like like I have. No, and and I will say this is the second time I have seen it, and I probably in the first time I saw it, it would maybe would have been around four stars, so it's definitely jumped up, and probably by the next two to you know three times I watch it, it could very well go up to a five. Um, oh, that's, this, is, this was this was only the second time that you watched. This it? was only the second time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that's yeah, I saw it first time about ten years ago, I think, nine or ten years ago. Huh. That's the, the, yeah. the, the first time I saw it was, like I said, about 17 years ago. Uh, I was like feeling very depressed and went to the video store and just grabbed it on a whim, not knowing. I hadn't seen any other Wong Kar Wai movies. I didn't really know anything about it. Uh, I just like grabbed it in a bunch of other like random uh, film school uh, student stuff. 
uh, sure. Pro, and and <laughs> uh-huh. uh, I went home and I watched King Express, and then I rewound the videotape and I watched it again, and then I rewound it and I watched it again. So, the first yeah. night I I saw it, I saw it more times than than you have seen it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you've uh, established yourself as a lover of this yeah. film. Yeah, so, so, I, so I I like I immediately loved it, and like I went back the next day and rented yeah. like every other Wong Kar Wai movie they had, which. I think at that point was was only uh, Fallen Angels and As Tears Go By. I think Happy uh-huh. Together wasn't out yet, and Scarecrow sure. didn't have uh, Ashes of Time. I don't think they didn't they didn't have it on VHS. Uh, I think I saw it later that year on a on a DVD. A different uh, video store okay. in town had yeah. like the old DVD of the original version of Ashes of Time, mm-hmm. which is like really hard to find now, but. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, and then uh, In the Mood for Love, I think, came out at the end of that year or the next year. Okay, and, right. Uh, yeah. I saw that in, in the theater when that came out. Uh, so, yeah, I've been a, a Wong Kar Wai fan ever since. Uh, yeah. And, um, yeah, I could, I mean, I could see, was this, Johnny Express was kind of the film that made... American audiences at, at some level, a very select portion of American audiences aware of uh, Wong as a, as a filmmaker. Is that correct? Um, I, I mean, when it, when it came out, I lived in Spokane. So yeah, uh, my, <laughs> uh, he was like an unknown. You didn't have access to any movies over there. Yeah. Well, we had, uh, the video store I worked at in Spokane had this, this same videotape of Chunking Express, but I don't oh, recall it uh-huh. like, going out often. And I, I yeah. at least hadn't heard anything about him, but like mm-hmm. resources were very limited for learning about film in Spokane in the mid nineties, uh, at least yeah. for me. Uh, yeah. And it well, wasn't, it wasn't generally to, in the nineties. Yeah. yeah. It, it yeah. seemed to me that, that in the mood for love was the bigger kind of breakthrough film. Oh yeah, for that long. makes sense. Mm-hmm. But that might just be that that was the first time I lived in a city where one of his movies played in a theater. Yeah. <laughs> because because none of them ever played in, in Spokane. So yeah. but uh but yeah, I mean it was uh uh Quentin Tarantino like had uh had Harvey Weinstein put it out on video under this like uh like mini label that Tarantino was going to run under the Miramax banner that I think only ever ended yeah. up putting out two titles mm-hmm. and Chunking mm-hmm. Express was the, was I think the first one. So any, yeah. any audience that it did get was probably because of Quentin Tarantino for, for mm-hmm. better or worse. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's great that he <laughs> did that. I, and I, I do think that my, my first viewing of, Chunking Express was was colored by Quentin Tarantino in uh, in not a good way. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, the the DVD that I had when I watched it was there was this introduction by Quentin Tarantino to the film, which is really terrible. It's so, um, it's so bad. It's it's really bad. Um, I, I watched again or part of it again last night and it I mean it's it's honestly like it's manic and strange and kind of patronizing and it's it's shot horribly and 
<laughs> and I think one of the things about it is he is so really, it just, it's like he loves the film, but he also is just describing the whole uh, Hong Kong cinema and Wong Kar Wai in a, in a very patronizing way, which I, maybe that should have made me love the film more because I would have been irritated by, by that. But I, I think I was so, so put off by by him and I, I kind of in a way didn't really want to love what he loved <laughs> so I, I went into it a little bit biased against it but um, I mean it did obviously win me over by the end and this time I'm very far removed um, from from that and then having seen some other Wong films um, in the interim I mean I, I really did love watching uh, this again and then of course pairing it with uh, Fallen Angels made it an even, I think, richer uh, experience. Yeah, I think uh, I think watching them together, like with with the express purpose of of kind of reviewing them as a unit, I think mm -hmm. uh, adds like new dimensions to Chunking Express that that I I hadn't really kind of considered or, or thought of before. And and similarly to Fallen Angels, like I've always kind of watched them separately or else yeah. as part of like uh, right like spend like like two days and watch all of the Wong Kar Wai films mm -hmm. uh, which is which gives a whole other perspective because all of his films yeah, yeah. Uh, build upon each other and intersect in so many like interesting ways like I think that's the best way to watch mm -hmm. 2046 is is after having watched all of the films that came before it yeah because yeah. it's like a, a compilation of all of those and like a, i was gonna say it feels like a culmination or a compilation mm -hmm. and he's referencing it but it's also completely new at the same time yeah yeah uh, that's one actually i need to rewatch as well i've only seen that one once and and that one is well i guess all of his films are this way but that's one that i think should be watched multiple times yeah, Wong Wong is is one of those filmmakers. Like for for me, like every film between Days of Being Wild and, and Twenty Forty Six, like every time I watch them, I'm like, this is the greatest film. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, he absolutely. Just, it's it's such like a, a strong string of movies, and he's he's unusual in a lot of ways for a Hong Kong filmmaker in that in that he works so infrequently. Like uh, mm -hmm. people like Johnny Toe or Choi Hark or, or even even John Woo for for most of his career are putting out movies every year or every other year. Yeah. Whereas mm -hmm. he, I think he made seven films, eight films between uh, nineteen eighty eight and two thousand four, and then he's only mm -hmm. made two since then. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, but then like this this series of films are the ones that I mean it's kind of like this flurry of kind of creative activity with Chunky Express, Fallen Angels, and then Ashes of Time. Um, the sequence, as we were uh, alluding to, or as we were talking, discussing in our phenomenal conversation last night, um, <laughs> he, now the, the sequence of, he had been working on Ashes of Time, and perhaps he was editing that film, um, and then he started working on Chunky Express, which he originally conceived Fallen Angels as being a part of Chunking Express. Um, yeah, yeah, there's, uh, he's told like, I think he's told different versions of, of when he started working on Chunking Express. Uh, the, mm -hmm. the last one I saw was an interview he gave in like 1995, where he said that uh, he had finished Ashes of Time, but it wasn't gonna premiere for two months at okay. like the Venice Film Festival or something. So he, 
needed something to do and he kind of needed uh that shoot was so grueling it was like a two-year shoot in the, in the desert with like all these stars and people were miserable and he was having trouble mm-hmm. and there was like lots of, of special effects with editing and music and and all of that it was like really hard to to put it together um and then he just wanted something as like a, a palette cleanser just something small to do so he just got this like small crew together they shot like half the film in christopher doyle's apartment and in mm-hmm. in a month they made chunking express and yeah. as his his original conception for it was it was going to be three stories but uh they're they're shooting in sequence and by the time they finished the second story they realized they had a a feature film there so they just stopped there and then the mm-hmm. next year he went in and reworked that third story and added um it was the added uh, kind of a second plot mm-hmm. yeah it's the the hitman story with with leon lai and uh and michelle reese is the was right. the third story and then he added the takashi kanashiro as the the mute who breaks the into mute. people's shops and forces people <laughs> to be his customers as uh, <laughs> yeah as a new story to to balance that out right yeah so yeah chunking express has this kind of double plot and then fallen angels also has a kind of double double plot um right. and so yes yeah. Right. So they, in a ways, they're they're mirror. The the films have mirror mirror within each one, but then they also mirror each other a, a bit in their their own structure as compared to each other. Yeah, and they seem so so kind of perfect as as like uh, as two part films. That it's it's yeah. really weird to kind of imagine what Shin King Express would have looked like with that third story in it. Like imagine yeah. he, he wanted to make a, a two hour and fifteen minute film instead of a, a hundred mm-hmm. minute film. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I I can't I can't like conceive of how that work would work. I'm I'm I mean I'm sure it would have been fine, but these kind of one to one two part things get all thrown off when you add a third part to it. It's like exactly. Why, like Hong Sang Soo make, makes films that are two parts, not not mm-hmm. three parts. Not three part. Yeah, I mean, there's it, that that idea of duality or kind of a split um, psyche or mirroring seems like that's a part part of the the film thematically, and so it would make sense to have the, this double plot kind of going on. And as you as you say, the the third part would be sort of a bit jarring to know how to fit that in there. I'm sure if he had done it, it would have been amazing, <laughs> but it's, and, it's beautiful, you know, as, as is. And I'm, and I'm glad it is these two separate films because they do mirror each other, but they also are tonally um, a really interesting counterpoint to one another because Chunking Express, while it has a kind of melancholy and, and longing and a sense of unfilled desire to it, it is a, a happy, fun film in, mm-hmm. in so many ways, whereas Fallen Angels is, is quite a bit darker and it ends um it, it ends a lot uh on a lot darker note even though there is a, a moment of kind of grace at the at the very end but the the film overall you know fallen angels is is quite literally dark I mean, it's shot completely at night whereas chunking express has this happier poppier feel even you know the music as, as counterpoint in in um both of them and of course it's so important to each film the music yeah, like the uh, the night and day thing, I think is really interesting because because Chinking Express is is the first half is is all at night and the second half is is all during the day like for for mm-hmm. the most part. Uh, mm-hmm. But then, and so it's got it's got that split there 
where you put them together and you have a whole day. But then Chungking Express and Fallen Angels, Fallen Angels is entirely at night, and right. it, paired with Chungking Express, it makes Chungking Express as a whole seem like the, like day, the day to its night. Yeah. So exactly. It's, yeah, it's like the 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 brightness, the uh, the happy ending of the first part, how it ends at at dawn. Uh, and then going into the sunniness of the second part makes the whole film feel like it's daytime, even though yeah, like exactly. most of the first half of it takes place at night. And mm -hmm. in the same kind of night that that Fallen Angels takes place in, like it's a, it's a story exactly. of a of a, a woman who is like hired people to smuggle drugs for her, who gets betrayed by them, and so she like hunts them down. She kidnaps a little girl. She. Uh, ends up like uh, murdering her her uh, former boss slash lover. Uh, it's like a really dark story. But it is really it, dark. But yeah. it doesn't feel that way. I mean, partially because it's told by Takashi Kaneshiro, who's being like super cute and adorable. Uh, and exactly. He's like such and a sweet guy. Poppy love, yeah. But it's but also just in the context of the whole movie, relative to Fallen Angels, it doesn't. It feels much brighter. Whereas yeah, Fallen exactly. Angels, it's it's got all of these people who, uh, who are so alienated and and so like unable to communicate with each other either for, like like literally where Takashi Kaneshiro's character is is a mute or mm -hmm. just all of the other people who who can talk at other people sometimes but normally but can never actually converse like there are no real conversations I think in in the whole film. Yeah, exactly. It, there's a lot of voiceover as if they, they can only kind of express what they feel, what they desire, um, not to anyone, but just completely in their own head. Like the, the hitman who talks to uh, Leon Mai talks to Michelle Reese through a song or, or yeah. Charlie Young talks to the, the boyfriend who, who dumped her for, for uh, Blondie uh, on the, on the mm -hmm. phone and we only hear Charlie Young's side of the conversation. Or mm -hmm. uh, uh, Karen Mock has uh, uh, a blonde woman who might be Blondie. It's unclear. <laughs> right. It, it, it is unclear. Mm -hmm. uh, she is like talking constantly at Leon Lai and he's like mm -hmm. never answering her with words. Right, exactly. And he's just kind of driven along by her almost like, yeah, the dialogue there doesn't really feel like a dialogue at all because she is the only one talking and, and whatever he feels kind of towards her is, is not um, even expressed or she doesn't really know it even. Um, he's just there as a prop in, in some ways. Yeah. And he's like weirdly less able to communicate with people around him than the, the mute Takashi Kaneshiro, who, even though yes, he can't exactly. talk, um, mm -hmm. never has any problem making his meaning clear to other people, yeah. either with looks or <laughs> yeah. hand gestures or like, you know, pulling hair or like grabbing somebody and mm -hmm. uh, forcing them to eat ice cream or, you know, <laughs> yeah. whatever. Or even when he's, he's talking to, or he's having a conversation with Charlie Young and, and she's doing all the talking and he's just sitting there, but she understands exactly what he is thinking. And they're basically having a conversation and he's not saying a word or even like barely gesturing. Right. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it, his, his character, I mean, his character is really interesting because there is some, the darkness of fallen angels in some way, I think, is tempered by um, that Takashi Kaneshiro mute character um, in fallen angels because he, I mean, in a way, there is this deep sadness of the idea that he cannot communicate. But as you say, he does communicate. And then also, I mean, there are some there are some very comic, you know, scenes um, when he is in the middle of the night taking over these stores or these businesses and, as you said, trying to force people to buy whatever he's decided to sell for that night, whether it's a, a shave and a haircut or and a shampoo <laughs> or uh, ice cream when he then forces, you know, the, the guy to get all of his family in there and just keeps forcing ice cream on them, which for some reason they can't refuse. Until they have to pay Until him. they pay him. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah so it's, it's, he's, it's, it's interesting how he's, he's an inversion of his character from Chunking Express. Like mm-hmm. they're they're connected in very specific ways. Like his his name in Chunking Express is, is Heiqiu, and he's Officer Number Two, Two Two Three, and uh, it's it's he it's a different name, but it's a very similar sounding name in uh, in Fallen Angels. And he introduces mm-hmm. himself as Prisoner Number Two Two Three, and he right. says he lost his voice from eating a can of expired pineapple, which is of course is what Kanshiro does in Chunking uh, Express. In Chunking mm-hmm. Express. And in the same way that Michelle Reese is like this inversion of the the Fei Wong character, like her job is yeah. to go into Leon Lai's apartment and, well, not his apartment, mm-hmm. but his uh, his like flop house where he stays before he goes on a on his uh, right. on his hit, and she cleans his apartment for him. And there's even mm-hmm. like the she wears the the rubber gloves that Fei Wong wears. There's the yep. the, the the towel that she sprays out. It's, yeah. All, is there the, even like the a, house... bu- a bucket too, or something? I think there's a bucket in both scenes yeah, or both uh, films. Maybe uh, yeah. the way she uh, the way she like spreads out the the blanket is is mm-hmm. similar to the way that Fei Wong does it, except uh, yeah. uh, what she does is more uh, sexual, obviously. Yes, <laughs> to the blanket. yes, exactly. Whereas exactly. Like Fei, Wong Fei Wong's like behavior is, is much more cute. innocent. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly, and yeah. playful. Yeah. Um, but you're right, there is that Im- embedded in both scenes. I mean, they are basically women who have this desire for this man mm-hmm. that either doesn't know about it or is not reciprocating it. And, and you know, so they're ex- expressing that in these, in cleaning the man's apartment. Um, right, and, and one, one's, one's a hitman, the other's a cop. It's... Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I love that inversion. It's so... Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I mean, it, both both films have so much of that 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 mirroring and doubling within themselves, just visually. Um, but but yeah, they are each other kind of mirrors. Um, and and it does make you wonder, like, what is the? There is a very maybe a very small uh, space in which it might flip to being something completely tragic, um, you know, in Chunking Express or or um, something that the that the distance between um those two tonal kind of states are um are are not very far away from one another and even in um i was noticing in fallen angels there is in a number of of scenes this kind of two-tone where um the 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 color tint in the the foreground will be blue and then in the background it will be red 
So I think you have um, almost those those dual states kind of represented, um, not only with the, the actual visual mirroring, but the the colors uh, as well. Yeah, and there's uh, uh, we talk about some of like the the repeated kind of shot techniques, like the the one uh, the famous one where where Tony Leung and Fei and Fei Wong are in kind of slow motion at the counter as he's drinking his coffee and the people in the foreground are moving uh, mm-hmm. at fast speed ahead of them. So it's different speeds yeah. on, on different planes of the image. Uh, you have mm-hmm. uh, a similar shot with, uh, except it's, it's in black and white and Charlie Young and, and Takashi Kaneshiro are in the foreground moving in slow motion while the people behind them are moving fast. And, yeah. uh, and, um, there's like a, a window with like a rainstorm going on, separating them from from us, and mm-hmm. yeah, that's just a, a really a really cool shot. It's uh, a really cool, yeah. I was cool I was reading shot. about that. I guess it it it, it takes place. Uh, it takes two minutes on screen time, but to, it actually took twelve minutes to shoot because the mm. the actors are actually moving in slow motion, and then they're shooting at a, at like a lower frame rate to like change yeah. the. And it, it like took them a long time to get the actors to move at the exact right rate to make <laughs> the motion look oh, like wow. it does in the film. And yeah, that's just uh, there's this uh, the spirit of of experimentation and verve to the film. Oh, like yeah, the, yeah. Like Christopher Doyle and and Wong Kar Wai saying, "Hey, why don't we shoot this entire film with like this extreme wide angle lens?" because exactly you know there's it it looks it looks cool it's like nobody's ever done that that Mm -hmm. that i know of uh it Mm -hmm. does interesting things to the space not just to like the actors faces in the foreground like the that you know that amazing uh penultimate shot with uh michelle reese eating noodles while takashi kanashiro gets in a fight in the background Uh, and her face is all distorted um yeah but it looks it looks so neat but what it, it also it, it changes like the the spatial relations of the characters it makes the mm-hmm. the the rooms that they're in look unnatural and yeah it brings, exactly it brings in it, of... it makes it look bigger than like the actual spaces are uh yeah which is yeah, which too is... long or something or there's these there's a lot of kind of um telescoping um mm-hmm shots too where you're kind of watching a character as if it's through the end like the wrong end of a, a telescope right um or, yeah, or something like, there's like the the distorted like railroad apartment that is that leo yes his, that's his flop house and like the the long mm-hmm. walks down the hallways that that he and michelle reese do to drop off like their money and guns and stuff uh mm-hmm. yeah it's it, it's a there's a, a playfulness to it that yeah. uh yeah for me at least is is like valuable in its own right but it also uh it's it's meaningful in that the 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 heroes of these films bring a similar kind of playfulness to their lives like right they they live in this like impossibly dense chaotic uh laissez-faire colony on on the brink of being taken over by a totalitarian state and the right. way they they cope with this, with you know, like the very specific problems of Hong Kong in the mid nineteen nineties, like on the eve of the handover, but also just the general state of uh, urban life in late capitalism is yeah. is to play these kind of games and to make an an adventure out of it. And I 
I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's juvenile, but I find that really like invigorating. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. I mean, I think that the, yeah, the characters themselves and that playfulness as you're talking about and the, also the, the disconnection, their jobs, what they're, what they're doing, the, their exper- experimentation, even in their lives, um, trying different things on seems to kind of reflect the society. But, but then to the techniques that we're talking about with um, Wong experimenting with different camera angles and angles and, you know, fast motion and slow motion and handheld and black and white and tilt shots and, you know, these different color filters. It seems like that also is not just experiment for experiment's sake, but it is actually reflecting the world that the characters are living in, in Hong Kong at the time. And it's also then reflecting their kind of psychological, emotional states um, themselves. So it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's just Wong trying to be cool or trying to be experimental, you know, to right. impress people or something. Yeah. But, but it, but it is. Yes. <laughs> but exactly. I mean, it is cool and it is, it is really fun. And yes, I don't know. I, yeah, there, I mean, there's a, there's an exhilaration really from watching um, these films, I think. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think he tends to get taken less seriously for the like the mm. stylization of his films than mm-hmm. for uh I read this this like BFI I think it was BFI uh this mm-hmm. book about Wong Kar Wai that really drove me nuts. Oh no. <laughs> and it was it was by a guy who uh like admits like he says like right off in the in the introduction is like I don't generally like Hong Kong films. I don't like genre films. They're too violent. Oh. And I'm oh. like oh Okay. Okay. Great. And yeah. <laughs> so all of the, uh, all of like the the references that he cites in the, like the various readings of the films are all these political interpretations. Like mm-hmm. everything, it's like this cliche in Western criticism of Eastern films, especially Hong Kong films in the 1984 yeah. 1997 period, that everything is a metaphor for the handover, which right. To some extent, I mean, that's in the air. It's inescapable, but... Yeah, it's obviously going to be influenced in some way, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's not only that. It's that the, the films that they value, they value insofar as they can be written about as metaphors for the handover. Right, yeah. And so if, if a movie isn't... If they can't think of a way that to, you know, make this Sammo Hung movie be about the handover or about colonialism, then it's not mm-hmm. valuable. It's just stylization or genre and therefore yeah. is like beneath, uh, you know, the European mind, yeah. which is oh, an approach to criticism that I just find appalling. It, uh, it, oh, <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's, it's really awful. I mean, I, I just have a hard time to understanding watching these films and not at, at the very least, like saying that this is, he's reflecting this emotional psychological state that is not just tied to, someone who is in Hong Kong at this particular period, but basically just about anybody who has been in a relationship, (laughs) someone who has felt alienated, someone who has, you know, been in this sense of kind of dislocation or being in a big city or, you know, feeling alone in the crowd. I mean, it's, it's so specific, but it's so just human too. I mean, you don't have to be yeah, you'd, that political reading, confining it to that, just is baffling to me. I don't yeah. understand how it could, 
you know, be just that. Unless it is just that classic, like, othering something without really, you know, it, thinking of it as a human thing first, <laughs> as you should. Yeah, well, I think I think it's also, I think there's a, a distrust of, of style and excess and emotion in mm. in academic circles because those are yeah, things that true. are that are harder <laughs> to write a, a you know a peer reviewed dissertation yeah. about whereas right exactly uh, if you hong include kong, your emotions it's suspect yeah i mean and hong kong cinema is like one of the you know it's it's famous for its its sensory extremes and yeah. for its uh uh, kind of willy-nilly uh, approach to good taste and yeah uh, it, you know it's mixing of genres and and tones and mm -hmm. and not doing mm -hmm. things the way you know they're supposed to be done uh, right. all all in yeah. the all in the search of, of like an effect on mm -hmm. on the audience whether it's like a, like a visceral thrill of a of like a kung fu fight or you know the yeah. Uh, you know, a romantic effect in something like Comrades Almost a Love Story or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, horror or, or melodrama or anything like that. It's all these, these low genres that only get talked about in, in academic or highbrow circles insofar as yeah. they are uh, ironic or yeah. Uh, yeah. metaphors for something else that is serious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a maddening thing that dismissiveness of of genre, um, and, and I mean I think it it's when you look at someone like Wong too. I mean he's he's clearly it's hard to probably pin his films into a very particular genre, but it, it's it's almost like it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like he okay he makes something that's more straight genre, but that's too lowbrow. But then he does some experimentation and, and mixing of genres, and then that's just experimental. That's not that doesn't work either. Yeah, <laughs> so and, um, he can't win. Like the, the guy who wrote this clearly, you know, is not an expert on Hong Kong cinema. Like he, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of like interesting information about, about Wong's films and he has some interesting readings and, you know, he's a fine writer, but the way, the way we experience Wong in like yeah. watching his movies from like the Criterion Collection or Kino Lorber or something like that, uh, mm -hmm. they're they're separate from the Hong Kong context because the films that were around him, his his peers, his his contemporaries, this the whole like generic system that he was working in uh, is not mm -hmm. as available to us in the West, and so we right. get this idea that that Wong is like this anomaly. He's like the one Hong Kong filmmaker who saw an Antonioni film or a Godard yeah. <laughs> film and decided to yeah. make movies like that. When that's not the case mm -hmm. at all. He's he's growing out of a very specific, you know, tradition uh, from the Hong Kong mm -hmm. New Wave. Uh, people like Patrick Tam and Choi Hark and uh, you know his contemporaries like like Stanley Kwan. Like there mm -hmm. are filmmakers who are doing very similar things to that Wong is doing with uh, both visually yeah. and narratively. Uh, that uh, generally Western critics are not familiar with because they haven't studied the cinema as a mm. whole, and I don't I don't yeah. know how you can you can study a filmmaker without studying the context of of where they're right. working. 
Uh, right, exactly. And that's how you end up with a with a, a whole book about Wong Kar Wai that every time it cites another film as being like an influence or this film is like that, it's always to a European mm-hmm. art film. Right. Yeah. I mean, in the I mean, even these like great film I've read um, a little bit from Tony Raines, which was great, and then Amy Tobin, but the, all of them were like, oh, this is Godard's influence. Clearly, this is like Godard, and it, that is a very strange like. Probably he did watch Godard, but then, to, as you say, to oh, dismiss. Well, the, I mean, yeah, uh, I mean, well, and he's invited comparisons to Antonioni himself, but mm-hmm. I think, I think, uh, I think part of that is just trying to communicate to an audience that doesn't know who Patrick Tam is. All these other, right? Sure. Right, but <laughs> but it's also, well, I mean, that's the job of the critic. <laughs> like yeah, critics should be going <laughs> right. out there and, and doing that work. It's, it's not like yeah. Wong Kar Wai's job to tell us who influenced him. <laughs> Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, I mean, in, in, on some level, I mean, any artist might necessarily know all of the influences um, or sure. uh, that are coming out in, in their work. I mean, if they're on some level, artists, artists are working kind of instinctually um, without saying, let's see who sh- well, I should make a film. And I think I'll be influenced by, you know, these various people. I mean, influences work on some level subconsciously. So, it's, yeah, as you say, it, it's the film critics job to kind of yeah, I mean, suggestive. especially somebody like Wong, who who has like designed his whole filmmaking style around like improvisation and being open to to like new mm-hmm. ideas and and uh, and adapting mm-hmm. to like what he, what he's feeling, where the story is going, what what his set designer has has done that day, and where that's yeah. going to take him. Uh, he he works much more intuitively than you know, these, these, then like Antonioni. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's how like you, like, uh, one of the things that really stuck out for me is he's talking about as tears go by, which is, which is Wong's first film. And, mm-hmm. uh, it came out in 1988 and he, uh, he credits it with like this amazing visual style with these alternating blue and red neon lights as mm. like a sign of like Wong's like nascent genius. Like he's making his first film and he's already got like this, you know, shocking like color scheme in his film. When if yeah. if you've actually like watched Hong Kong films from 1986 to 1989, you will see that every mm-hmm. single one of them is suffused with blue and red neon. Like it, okay. it, every film <laughs> uh-huh. of that period is, it's like, it's uh, mm. uh like you can't get away from it. Like it, it's a, a specific like Hong Kong neon blue is is the right, night scene right. in, in City on Fire and Better Tomorrow mm-hmm. and The Killer and Johnny Toe's The Big Heat. Like it's it's everywhere around there. And Wong is just working within that style. Yeah. So I mean that, so for that was really frustrating for say, me. That is very frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> I so didn't, we, we didn't talk we didn't talk John, about this last night. <laughs> Yeah, no, I know, right? Now it's all coming out. No, and, and really, I mean, I think what we're coming to here is that you have a, a book that is in no. you that you need to, like, produce. I, I really don't. <laughs> uh, well, I guess we just keep talking about it in podcasts. But, yeah, right. I would actually love to read. I mean, well, is, I mean, tell me, is there a great book that, um, you might recommend to people to introduce them um, yeah, I think, to Hong Kong cinema. I think I think David Wardwell's Planet Hong Kong is like as good mm-hmm. a, an introduction to Hong Kong cinema as is likely to be be produced. 
Um, mm -hmm. uh, Boardwell is like a, a really good writer at, at communicating uh, complicated yeah. ideas to a more general audience, like not mm -hmm. just like a just a general audience of cinephiles, like people who are really interested in film. And I think right. uh, and Planet Hong he he uh, is more sensitive to the like the formalism and the excitement of Hong Kong cinema than. Uh, a lot of his peers, and uh, the the guy who wrote this other book kind of rags on Boardwell at times, which, oh, is, which is also kind of annoying. <laughs> um, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, that that's that's where to go. Uh, I really like uh, uh, Stephen Tio, who has written a number of films. He's written a Wong Kar Wai book that I, I haven't okay. read, but uh, uh -huh. he wrote a Johnny Toe book that uh, is is flawed, but is still is still pretty good. Uh, he's got a whole history of Hong Kong cinema that I've been slowly working my way through. He's got a book about okay. Wuxia films. Uh, he's he's very good. And what what was his name? Did you say uh, Stephen Tio? Uh, Stephen Tio. Okay. Is excellent, and there's, and there's like other there's other writers like on the on the internet. Like Berenice Renault is is always really really astute on on Chinese cinema, and and Shelley Kraser as well, who uh, helps program who programs the Chinese films at the Vancouver Film Festival, and and Tony Raines, mm -hmm. of course, is 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 excellent. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, just this one book was not good. <laughs> No, it's frustrating. Don't read that one. Yeah, and like even Dave Kerr, when uh, when he's written about about Chinese films, has always has been really insightful. Like, I mean, good critics are are good critics, regardless of what they're writing about. I think. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we got off That's on this like long tangent about this book. <laughs> <laughs> we should get back to the actual films, which is. The point. This is not the the Sean whines about other critics podcast. This is the Junking Express and Fallen <laughs> Angels podcast. Um, <laughs> oh well, one thing we definitely should talk about, and you kind of complained about this on Letterboxd a little bit, is the problem of Leon Lay as the killer in Fallen Angels. Yeah. You had a hard time accepting him as this cool killer character. I think yeah. you said. Yeah, I mean, he's got he's got everything going for him to make him cool. Mm -hmm. Like he's he's mm -hmm. wearing the black suit. He's got he's like got Chai yeah. Fett's you know pair of uh, pistols. He's got Christopher Doyle. He's got Wong Kar Wai. He's got Massive Attack, and yet he's still so dopey. You just <laughs> you just look at him yeah. and you like, I and, and right. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's like the it's like retroactively. Uh, because I saw this before I ever saw him in anything else, but mm -hmm. but he's uh, he's so much the the kind of dopey, uh, lovable, adorable yeah. guy in Comrades, almost a love story that I just I can't buy him as this like cold hitman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't have really any associations with him, so it it worked for me, I think, but. Okay. I mean, I do kind of think, and I did really like him in the in the role. But if you do kind of maybe imagine um, Tony Leung in that in that role in, instead, it it would add a pretty different vibe. Yeah, perhaps. Tony Leung's hard. Yeah, I mean, he's he's played like a, a darker kind of hitman role before. 
Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. Well, it's even, still, it's even still not even of, really kind of fitting for him. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I mean, somebody, somebody like, uh, like a, even like a Lao Ching Wong or, uh, Anthony Wong might be more interested in that part, although they're not as, as handsome as Leon Lyatt. And part of the whole point of the film is that they're, they're all like these young pop stars. Oh yeah. Like, right. Leon Lyatt is like a huge pop star at this time. So. Right. Yeah. Um, and Fei, Fei Wong, of course, is, is also right. Yeah, in, Fei Wong uh, and, and Takashi Kaneshiro was was as well. Okay, I think yeah. I think Chunking Express might have even been Kaneshiro's first film. Oh, interesting. Or, what? Yeah. Um, what? It was Fei Wong's first film too, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, but she's. I mean, since yeah. Kaneshiro has like a, a very distinguished acting career, but Fei Wong has mostly just done done music. Just done that. She's only done a couple yeah. of other movies. Uh, mm-hmm. 2046, obviously, and and uh, she and Tony Leung uh, reunited in uh, Jeffrey Lau's uh, Chinese Odyssey 2002, which is okay. uh, really funny and also really romantic, and it's like really cool to see the two of them together in this kind of mm. wacky period yeah. film. Uh-huh. Uh, that I that's a really good like one. under the radar Hong Kong film. Uh, that used mm-hmm. to be on Hulu. I don't know if it is anymore, but uh, yeah. If you if yeah. you like if you like the pair of Tony Leung and and Fei Wong, and you wow. like wacky uh, yeah. wacky Hong Kong comedies, I mean, yeah. <laughs> like uh, at one point they like get buried up to their necks in like sand, and so it's like just their uh-huh. heads sitting there, and, and they're like just these disembodied heads, and it's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds great. Yeah, um, they they do. It is interesting because in something like Chunking Express, they're they're technically don't have that many scenes together, I guess. But the ones that they do have together are just there's so much chemistry um, yeah. between the two of them. Um, whether it's just him dragging or pulling those vegetables for her in the street or kind of meeting her while he's eating or just the, the moments in the, uh, the apartment um, or over the lunch counter. Again, they're relatively brief, but there's just so much there. <laughs> Even though for half the time he is not really paying that close uh, of attention to her, his mind is you know occupied with this, the girlfriend that broke up with him. Um, but their their scenes together are just so good. Yeah, I mean he's he's so great. Like the he's playing such a, a ridiculous character. He's a, he's a guy who talks to yeah. soap. He's a he's a grown man <laughs> who's a police officer who's like his right. apartment is filled with stuffed animals. He <laughs> it's bizarre. He he like doesn't notice that that everything in his apartment has has changed, or he <laughs> pretends to not notice. But he's. Yeah. His but bear works turns, and white bear turns into Garfield's. <laughs> and the like when he's carrying like those vegetables for him, he's so funny in that scene. Like he just, really is. He like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> such a good scene. Yeah, I mean he is. I I I think he's the best actor working today. And I mean this is is clearly it's not even one of his like dramatic roles. Like yeah. I mean, it's it's great. It's really funny, but he plays it completely straight, which is mm-hmm. which is what makes it so funny, I think, and and just 
um, just brilliant. Yeah, and it's um, it's so it's so opposite his performance in in like the in the mood for love in twenty forty six or oh, or, or yeah, happy together, absolutely. which are mm-hmm. which are so much like bleaker and more grown up. But yeah, that's just like longing the, and desire and yeah. Yeah, that's the 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 range of of Tony Lung there, and he he manages to be silly and cool at the same time, which yeah, absolutely. Takashi Kaneshiro is 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 silly, and he's cute, but I don't know how cool he is in, yeah, in either of no. his films, really. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I can see why you would completely fall for him for for him um, in some way, but yeah, he, he doesn't have that that kind of. Well, he, he can't in Chunking Express Actor. because he's 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 paired up with Bridget Lynn, and you, you can't get cooler <laughs> yeah. than Bridget Lynn. And this was no. this was her last her last film, as as far as right. I know. Right now, today, she was she still never made kind a, of an established. Oh, Sorry, she go ahead. she was like the established star. She was like the one of the biggest stars in in Hong right. Kong. Yeah, and so this was what you said her last. Yeah, her last she role. she re- she retired right after this. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which is like a huge loss for for cinema, but probably better for yeah. her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I loved her in this in this too. She's um, <laughs> well, it's such great. a hard part because she's hiding behind that wig and that the exactly. trench coat and, and the, the glasses. glasses. So there's yes. so all of like the things that an actor typically relies on are are like yeah. taken away from her. So she's got to. Yeah. She's got to work with with like her voice and just the way she stands and moves her hands and. Like the way she yeah. like lights a cigarette and walks. then like immediately yeah. throws it down and yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's a very complicated character too that you are, am I supposed to like her, dislike her? She kidnaps a child, but then just doesn't I mean, she, really do anything. She's not going to hurt the child. I mean, she just she's gives, not gonna gives hurt her ice child. cream for no. an hour. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. my God, is that kid going to be sick? Every time I see that, it's like, he's eating ice cream after ice cream after ice cream. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think, I mean, as as a parent, it's a horrifying scene. But on the other hand, you're like, well, but Bridget Lynn has her. It's going to be fine <laughs> in a way, even though she's like a drug smuggler. Yeah, it's um, it's such a weird story time. And, and you know. Really like, weird. Yeah. Like I've said, I've, I've seen this movie you know, dozens of times and, and still just watching it the other day for this, I, I, I noticed something that I'd never noticed before, which is that, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, in, in one of the shots of her, her boss, the, uh, the, the white guy who runs white the bar, guy. Uh-huh. uh, yeah. you can see him talking to somebody and the person that he's talking to, you only see from behind and it's, you get like a, like a half mm-hmm. a shape and it's one of the Indian couriers that betrays, uh, mm-hmm. Bridget Lynn. So I, I had always assumed that like the couriers betrayed her and went off on their own, and then the the right. the white guy is going to have her killed for like losing his drugs. But in actuality, yeah. he has conspired with the couriers to like cut her out of the deal so that they can like kill her and keep the money for themselves, and then he can right, replace exactly. her with another Chinese woman who will wear a blonde wig for him. Yeah. <laughs> Which is another, yeah, he's like which is like the most sinister character. Yeah, it's like the most sinister kind of doubling in the whole film. It really is. Yeah, it, it's like it, the it, the white guy forces the Chinese woman to dress up like a white woman. Yeah, exactly. It's so exploitative and just feels so awful. Yeah, 
Um, and, and that guy and that looks exactly has... like somebody I used to work with. So oh, <laughs> the look of that guy, that's like, if you were like slimy character role, that's mm. the guy, Yeah, that character. And he really isn't in it very much. You just get these kind of a few glimpses of him and this kind of sordid section. And, um, oh, yeah, he's just horrible, <laughs> which yeah. is, I think, intentional. But I'm, Because I'm... it is supposed to be this grimy, awful uh, place, too, which, again, is interesting in Chunking Express because it is so poppy and fun and catchy, and yet it is this very sordid world that they are immersed in yeah i'm um, I'm, I'm mesmerized by his jukebox like the three, the three yes. spinning cds on it like every oh, every time yeah. i see it i'm like hypnotized by it like they, they, they yeah. never spin the way i think they're going to and uh-huh. uh you know enough cannot be said about uh michelle reese and the Wurlitzer jukebox and fallen angels that is uh, oh, yeah so good one of the the highlights of of the cinema right there but uh <laughs> Yeah, the the, the the whole Chunking Mansions location is uh, is just such a fascinating place, and it's mm-hmm. it's, it's a microcosm mm-hmm. of of Hong Kong, of course, but also just kind of every urban setting where it's just this yeah. like mass of of people that's dirty and messy and chaotic, and there's absolutely zero respect for law or order, yeah. and everyone is yes. in it for themselves, and yet yeah. some people are able to carve out like a, a little bit of happiness and some, you know, inkling of a relationship or potential relationship out right, of that, exactly. out of that mess. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And he really captures the sense of this place as just kind of this, this, this warren of this maze like place that you're, you're both trapped in and around every corner you kind of see, a different sort of person or, you know, and he, and he captures the sense of this um, consumerist capitalist pop um, culture world where these, you know, these Western signs, whether it's a Coca-Cola sign or a huge McDonald's sign, um, they're kind of popping at, out uh, at you everywhere. And that's both, off-putting, but also really attractive, <laughs> too. Um, right, and it's there, I mean, it's there in the pop music where you have like the you have yeah. the reggae song, you have you have Dinah Washington, you have uh, the Mamas and the Papas, and you have you have you know a Cantonese pop singer singing mm-hmm. a, a song that Forget was a him, hit. I in think, a, yeah. Well, no, no, I'm talking about Faye Wong oh, singing about oh, 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 a, a song by an Express, Irish yeah. band that was a hit in America. <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah yeah but yeah, also also the songs in, of... yeah also the songs in, in fallen angels in, in the similar kind of way where you have uh, yeah exactly the, the forget him song there's like i think there's like a japanese pop song there's the the massive attack remix and then of course the yeah the <laughs> only you at the end which yeah the very end which is so different which from is... everything else but is absolutely yeah. perfect Oh my god! I mean that that scene. I it just I think I texted you or something. And I was like mm-hmm. that. I I can't I can't handle it. I just that slayed me. I mean I was just kind of in a, a puddle at the end of that scene. And it and it was so interesting because I did feel throughout Fallen Angels this a, a true dis 
disconnect and kind of an alienation, which is, I think, what I was supposed to feel. But that one moment of this kind of warmth and connection that you get paired with that pop song, like kind of in the way that only pop songs can do to you. <laughs> I, it was it's just so incredibly moving, that one moment. Yeah, and it's it, yeah, it's such a bleak film. Like there are there are like moments yeah. of of happiness in it. Like there's the there's the the slow motion shot of of the two of them that goes on for two minutes. There's the uh, mm-hmm. there's the the father and the son connecting over over the oh, video. Oh yeah, that's 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 yes. really sweet and really poignant. But yeah. but it's also it's bittersweet because we're only seeing it in the context of the father having died. But, right, exactly. But then you you have uh, Michelle Reese and, and Takashi Kaneshiro. For some yeah. reason, just this one moment of of connection. Yeah, and like two strangers somehow yeah. in that moment, kind of came and, together and having a moment of warmth. Yeah, and in in the mo- in the world of the film, like it, it's in, we can be pretty sure that it's not going to last. I mean, she exactly. is totally psychotic, and he is. Yes. Uh, uh, certainly got issues of his own in his but, own way <laughs> yeah but for like this one slow motion motorcycle ride and this one song like everything is is yeah. just lovely yeah it's beautiful and there's he's he's smoking as he's riding too right I, or, I, or maybe like i like i have this memory of this like puff of, of smoke kind of going up um i, I think it, it is um from his mouth and i mean it's just like a beautiful image of what the thing is that's like this puff that it's going to disappear in just a moment but it's so beautiful as you're watching it yeah, and you're immersed watch, in it in I, that that moment i watched these and these two films in, in happy together this week and i had forgotten uh-huh. how much smoking there was in mid-90s hong kong films and uh, yeah yeah i, I quit a smoking a long time ago but i i, I remember <laughs> <laughs> i remember it well <laughs> i remember that that feels <laughs> Oh yeah, they and they look really cool while they're doing it too. Yeah, that's the thing they don't tell you about smoking is that smoking is uh, really yeah. cool. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you almost yeah. There's a certain level you almost can't not look cool in a way, yeah. <laughs> or it's easy to look cool with a with a cigarette. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> you you kids listening out there, if you take anything away from this podcast right. here it, it it should be that uh uh style is not bad and smoking right. makes you cool <laughs> oh go start smoking <laughs> <laughs> oh boy all right i think uh right. on well, that note we should uh uh I'm trying to think of like a song pun. I can't think of anything. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, when we start advocating like underage smoking, I think is probably the time to stop recording the podcast. It probably so, is. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was uh, our discussion of these films. It was one of our discussions of these films. It was different from the other one. Uh, it had some good different. stuff. It had a, like a long tangent where I got really angry about something, <laughs> which was not in the other one. Uh, but no. hey, I, 
Well, that was fun. You know. uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, you threw out some good titles for people to read about Hong Kong cinema. Yeah, so, read, read, you know, read PSA. Some, read some books, people. Yeah, not just yeah. listen to podcasts. Look at pictures of Tony Long and and read books. Yes. Uh, yes. So I don't know when we will be back with another podcast. Uh, we haven't no. really talked about that yet. No. But uh, there will be something, if not before SIF, then then definitely during SIF, we will have uh, a, a podcast or two. I think I think we did two last year during the festival because it goes on forever. That's um, right. Yeah. So we'll do that, and then and then we'll see where the future goes. We should, yeah. Uh, yeah, we should talk about what we're going to do at some point, but maybe not while the show is still going on. <laughs> Probably not. I mean, it might not be the most riveting conversation. Probably not. But, but uh, yeah. so yeah, you can uh, you can find this and and other episodes of the Francis Farmer Show at uh, CLScreenScene dot com, where you can also find uh, reviews of movies that uh, we have written and also other people have written. Uh, and you can find out what's playing in Seattle, all the good movies that you should go see. And yeah, you can find, uh, Melissa, you are on Twitter at, uh, yes, at one April day, O N E April day. And, and also on letterbox under the same name or my own name, Melissa Tamanda. And, uh, I am, uh, on Twitter at the end of cinema. So yeah, I think, uh, do we have anything else that we want to say? I think we've said it all. <laughs> At one time or another. <laughs> That's right. All right. Definitely yesterday, if not tonight. So, yes, yeah. indeed. All right. Well, thank you, Melissa, for uh, being on the show again. Yeah, thanks for having me on twice. Yeah.